Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Becky Strapple-Sovers, a host with the New Books Network. And today we're speaking with Rebecca Hardy, a medievalist working at the Free University in Berlin. We're talking about her forthcoming book, Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians and Women in 10th Century England. And I'm pretty excited for this one today as someone who also works on early medieval England. So thanks so much for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm really pleased to be here. Great. Can you just start out with, can you just briefly tell us about the book? Sure. So this is a volume, a collection of essays that invites its reader to rediscover the legacy of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians. And it fosters an interdisciplinary scholarly conversation that very much encourages multiple perspectives on history and opens the door to numerous ways of connecting with this rich historical period. So it's about Athelflaed, who was more than a ruler. She was a visionary military leader, as she was a fiercely persuasive diplomat, whose campaigns successfully expelled the Vikings out of the Midlands in England, fortified her kingdom, and then really forged the blueprint for the United Kingdoms of England. And as a result, she's been described as a warrior queen, She's also been described as mother of the English. And yet her legacy has still not been the focus of any singular volume of essays. And so this publication really does redress um, a hiatus in scholarship of early medieval England. It notes that her story remains scattered across diverse historical sources and also singular studies, overshadowed by her male counterparts. And then it also notes that her formative political relationships with other influential women in the 10th century has only really received scant attention. So more specifically, this volume, it unearths Athelflaed's life and reign. It's bringing together this scattered source material in one place. It dissects her legacy as it has evolved over time. And that is about entangling some of the fact from the fiction that it's accumulated. Um, And it also delves into her unique relationships with women in early medieval England, revealing their political, military, literary, and also domestic agencies. And so in this way, this volume is really about showcasing how medieval history can offer fresh perspectives to its readers, inviting multiple and diverse engagements with the past. So you've told us a little bit about Athelflaed in that introduction to your book. Can you tell us more about her? Who was she? Why was she important? Um, Kind of elaborate on that. And then sort of on a personal note, why did you want to edit a whole book about her? Yeah, sure. So Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, is an absolutely fascinating person in history. She's a great subject of study. And for the reader who might not be so familiar with the 10th century, I just note a few things about her reign because that really is what underpins her legacy. So she was the daughter of Alfred the Great, the king of the West Saxons, and Aylswith, a Mercian noblewoman. And she was their eldest child, born around the year 817, and descended from a line of Mercian noble women. She was probably brought up in the West Saxon court where her father ruled, but her return to the Mercian seat of power, that's her mother's seat if you like, occurred when she married Athelred, and he was the elderman uh, of the Mercians at that time. And that was the highest seat of office that you could have in Mercia, second only to Alfred's overlordship. And of course, this marriage between Athelflaed and Athelred was a strategic alliance. It was there to maintain a really strong political connection between Wessex and Mercia and maintain political stability, of course, in the region. 
And this is also the marriage that made Ethelflaed Lady of the Mercians, which is the title that we refer to her with now. And so Ethelflaed and Ethelred, they ruled together in Mercia until 911, at which point Ethelred dies and Ethelflaed becomes the sole leader of the Mercian people. It is possible that she was ruling alone for longer than that. So one historical source says... Um, Athelred suffered from a prolonged illness before his death, and this could have been uh, from a wound incurred on the battlefield, for instance, or any other cause, and that might have rendered him unfit for office. It is speculation, but at any point, <laughs> uh, when Athelflaed becomes a sole leader, historical su su um, sources suggest that she was still very much accepted and celebrated as a leader of the Mercian people. And that's important because this is what she's really famous for, that during her reign, she demonstrates not only military might, but also the ability to negotiate really strong political alliances and fortify this kingdom. And at this period, it's particularly this kind of leadership that's crucial, because the 10th century, it's not only a period of political turbulence, but it's also a period that saw ongoing intense surges of Viking attacks. So Athelflaed's political role was very much the defense and expansion of Mercia. And just for the listener as well, by Mercia, we mean West Midlands in England at this time. So to give a little bit of geographical context, if we picture Mercia, this is a region of really significant political borders. Um, and these borders are shifting owing to Danish attacks and settlements. So just in the south, you have Wessex, where King Alfred ruled, and then afterwards Edward the Elder, that's Athelflaed's brother, her younger brother. And then along the eastern border, you have the Danelaw. That's the territory under Danish rule. To the west, you've got the Welsh kingdoms, but only the southern Welsh kingdoms are under English overlordship at this time. And then in the north, you've got Northumbria, the North Kingdoms, and they're still settled by Scandinavian Vikings at this time. So Athelflaed is sort of hemmed in, if you will, um, by contested borders. Um, and the Vikings at this time, I mean, they've been the subject of so many depictions. So I think it's clear they wanted to king conquer all the kingdoms of England. That much was clear. And um, they made a pretty good attempt as well. But Wessex proved a formidable opponent with King Alfred. And then with Athelflaed, Mercia was going to become once again vital in pushing back the Vikings and paving a way for the subsequent unification of England. So... By the end of Athelflaed's reign, which was in 918, we see a lot of things that mark her success. At least 11 fortified towns were either constructed, reclaimed or rebuilt from Roman ruins along the expanding Mercian borders. And by fortifications, we mean here the burrs. They're also called the burrs, and that's where you get the modern English term borough from. So they are they're big settlements um, and really strategic settlements as well. And then in 918, what's really important is Athelflaed moves north. Under her, the Mercians take on Leicester, and then the factious men of York pledge their allegiance to her. But Athelflaed then dies suddenly, before this expansion into the Northern Territories could be put into effect. Cause of death is not known. It sounds a little suspicious to me. But anyway, in 918, so Athelflaed dies and then her daughter Alfwin succeeded her mother and became effectively the second lady of the Mercians. And I really like that part of the story because it's actually the, the only moment in early medieval England where a woman inherits rule from her mother. And it also seems in the sources that Alfwin was very much trained by her mother for her kind of leadership. 
Charter Evidence has Alfwyn's signature alongside her mother's, so her illegal agency in it implies that Athelfled was involving her daughter in matters of state during her lifetime. For whatever the purpose was, it was short-lived. And in 919, so that's a year later, the next year, Alfwyn is deposed. So Edward comes in, she's taken into Wessex, and Edward, that's Athelflaed's brother, just as a quick reminder, he moves into Mercia and takes on the rulership. And this really is the assimilation now of Mercia and uh, the West Saxon kingdom under single rulership. Of course, it's not the whole story. It's not where the story ends. But it is where I think I need to pause here with the end of Athelflaed's reign, because that was 918. And, and you asked me, why did I want to enter edit this book? And it really started in 2018. That was a spark for me because that marked the year 1,100 years after her death. And during that year, there were many commemorations that were widely broadcast across England. And there were notable events at places like Tamworth and Gloucester, where Athelflaed died and was buried. And then also there was the emergence of just so many different representations of Athelflaed in ceremonies, in historical novels, sculpture, works of art, TV series. Maybe the, the listener is particularly familiar with the immensely popular series adaptation of Bernard Cornwall's The Last Kingdom, where Athelflaed, of course, features, and Elfwyn. Um, but we also heard at this time tropes being rehearsed, and as I mentioned in my introduction, Athelflaed being described as warrior queen and mother of the English, and then also as one of the greatest female leaders that history almost forgot. So, like you say, like you know yourself, like as an early medievalist, I just, I felt so invited um, into this subject. It was such an important time to look at her again and look at her legacy. And I really wanted to understand that better and also understand what kind of relationship that had to other women in the 10th century. Um, and that's very much what this volume enabled. It allowed me to come into conversation with a fantastic group of scholars who approach from various disciplines, um, all wanting to explore those kind of questions. And that's very much what we're presenting in this volume. Wonderful. Thank you. So one part of your introduction I found really interesting was the discussion of, uh, quote unquote, exceptional women. Um, as you say, quote, this diversity of women's lived experience shows the need to qualify the conditions under which particular women are viewed as exceptional in history, as several essays here critically explore, unquote. Uh, and this is a notion which has been contested in previous research. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how some of the chapters in this book grapple with this conversation around exceptional women? Sure. I mean, the idea of exceptionality is something of a double-edged sword, I'd say. Um, so on the one hand, of course, I've already mentioned in my introduction, and Athelflaed is noteworthy. She's incredibly interesting. And the very publication of this volume suggests that she's noteworthy, she's, she's worthy of attention. And yet this volume is also about contextualizing Athelflaed's reign with stories about other women in the 10th century. So not only noble women or powerful women, but also women from across the social spectrum. So that's including teachers and students and scribes, agricultural workers and tradeswomen, even deviants and witches in this volume. And to enable that, the scholars here, they draw on a wealth of scholarship about women in the 10th century, as well as adding the new evidence and insights through their own studies. And in view of this, in view of this contextualization, the thing I would say about exceptionality is that it is so important to be specific about the ways that Athelflaed or any woman in history is exceptional, 
and also to be really critically aware of the effect of that term. And maybe I could just give an example that helps make that clear, that sort of double-edged sword effect of exceptionality. So if I focus on the theme of power and agency and look at the title, The Lady of the Mersian, so what does that title even signify in terms of the kind of power and agency that was available to Athelflaed at the time? And going back to the original title, uh, her title is actually Hlavdi, so Lady. And that is what she acquired at marriage, and her husband, Athelred, was Hlavord, that's Lord of the Mersians. Basically, it's the female equivalent, so it could also be translated as female lord, but lady is the conventional translation. And non-English sources at this time also um, uh, describe her as a queen, but it's not her official title at this time. Actually, in some ways, Athelflaed seems to have enjoyed greater freedom and power than other contemporary queens in either the West Saxon kingdom or the Welsh kingdoms. And I have one of my favourite examples of this um, concerns an entry in the Mercian register, so that's the historical narratives in Mercia about Athelflaed's reign. Um, and it's about Athelflaed taking a Welsh queen captive. So the story goes that in about 916, on the year 916, an English abbot and his companions are killed near Brecon in South Wales. And this does not sit well with Athelflaed at all. Apparently this abbot was some kind of valued connection of hers because three days later, Athelflaed sends an army into Wales storms the Welsh king's keep and then captures the Welsh queen and takes 30 members of her royal retinue hostage and brings them back by force. This leaves the Welsh king in a really difficult situation. He's got a choice to make, either open war with Mercia and the Lady of the Mercians, or travel to Mercia and petition the release of his queen under the terms set, of course, by Athelflaed. And this seems to have been quite a symbolic act. Athelflaed knew that the Welsh king couldn't compete in force with her, and she also has absolutely no qualms at this time in defending and reasserting her authority in cases where it seems to be challenged. So from this we can derive that Athelflaed certainly enjoyed the political privileges of a strong economic military power, which she herself had taken, taken pains to foster, she had helped develop that. And this definitely rendered her a particularly tough negotiator and influential actor. But when we dig a little deeper in documentary and archaeological evidence, we also see that wives and daughters of Mercian kings were often granted significant power. That this is not just Athelflaed who may have enjoyed those kind of privileges in the past. So just to give a couple of examples, Offa's wife Cunathrith witnessed charters regularly. That means she was um, expressing a degree of legal agency as she is also the only English queen to have had coins struck in her name, very much fashioned in the Roman style. And then you also have Althrith, she's the second consort of Offa's successor, was witnessing charters, and her mother, Gwenthrith, witnessed charters and also presided as abbess over two of the wealthiest monasteries in Kent, which gave her huge and, and insignificant standing again, of course. So in light of this evidence, couldn't we say... Athelflaed's reign appears less as an anomaly, less as an exception, and more as like a continuation of a long tradition of female royal power in Mercia. And just along that similar line of argument there, when we look outside of English sources, when we look across, for example, to continental annals, we see that West, Western European queens in the 10th and 11th centuries, they're also exercising similar privileges of rank and military command. So for example, there are many um, examples given in this volume, but just two that I like. Um, there's the Italian Engelberger. 
She's the concubine of Louis II. She commanded armies. And she was also entrusted with political negotiations. And she did her fair share of hostage-taking as well. And then there was also Emma, Princess of France, who became the wife of King Raoul of Burgundy in the 10th century. She had the management of estates. And she had the management of great armies. So she, these are also women who could be ascribed the title warriors and even warrior queens or warrior leaders. So given this, given what we're looking at in these different sources, I think we end up with a sort of rather tired feeling to that question of exceptionality. And you could rephrase it just being like, genuinely, how many powerful women is it going to take before they stop being the exception to the rule and become the rule itself? Um, And certainly, of course, in saying that, not every person in the 10th century was born to royal power. So we are dealing with elite women here. But we have now gone beyond evidence in scholarship that women in history are are exceptional when they hold power, position and influence. And that, that does not make them exceptional, clearly. And you could even take it one step further and say, it appears that when Athelflaed took on political and military responsibility as she did, when she was acting as a widowed woman in her rank, she was exact, acting exactly as you would expect. The caution then is, We need to be critically aware, I think, of the assumptions that we are making about a period of history when we describe a woman in history as exceptional. And we also need to be really careful not to reinscribe accidentally old narratives of the unattainability of power and agency for all women when we do so. And so in that sense, it is the double-edged sword. And I suppose maybe the final point I'd want to make about that is just coming out of this as... English and non-English sources from this period, including the Mersian Annals, celebrate Athelflaed's leadership. And that also, in a sense, is a privilege. It suggests that she was accepted and we know that her campaigns were successful, that she was extremely good at what she did. And that's not true of all leaders. Not all leading women were successful in their campaigns. Not all leading men were successful in their campaigns. And not all of them enjoyed such a flattering report in historical writings. So... Of course, depending on the political ideals of the writer, some royal women, including several of the people that I named above, they were castigated in the historical record. Here, they're described as Jezebels and other things are ascribed to them. So we can still learn from those sources that these women held power and influence, but we also say see that they were not treated favorably in the historical writings. So I think for me, that serves a reminder. If we say, okay, Athelflaed was favorably received and appeared favorably in historical writings. And once again, exceptionality is in the eye of the beholder, basically. It means that how we choose to remember and celebrate female leaders is what renders them exceptional in the first place. Yeah. Oh, that's such a fascinating um, concept and such a nuanced thing to think about. So thank you. Um, Your answers so far have been so, so informative and, and, and thorough. Um, I'm curious did, if you learned anything while working on the book that um, you were kind of surprised by or, or um, found to be unexpected. What might readers of the book be surprised to learn? I think there's a lot of what you've already talked about that some readers might be surprised um, to learn about. But yeah, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? There were so many surprises and I did learn a lot um, through this. Um, one thing that I I would like to say, because it's something that really sticks with me now after the volume, and I find myself referencing it a lot in conversation coming back to this point. So it really has to do with this contradictory report that I heard uh, during this time when we were composing this volume, which is on the one hand, Althoflad being 
one of the greatest female leaders that history almost forgot. And then I was so aware that in F.T. Wainwright's formative 1959 article about Athel Flad, that he described her legacy as suffering from a conspiracy of silence. And we really inherited that idea. And then at the same time, however, as 2018 celebrations or commemorations showed me, Athelflaed was very much remembered. And there's evidence across the landscape that she's not been forgotten at all in cultural memory. And I wanted to understand that how are these two viewpoints coexisting and why do we have those two? And the answer really comes in the source materials. So if you just allow me to unpack some of that, it comes to a bit of a, a strange conclusion about gender for me. Um, and then so the source materials for Athelflaed, how do we know who she was? The main one is the Mercian Register. That's a Mercian history covering the years 902 to 924. So that's including the whole span of Athelflaed's reign. And it's our key source. It includes her military operations in Mercia, her diplomatic negotiations in the north, and also her dealings in Wales. It's also been called the Annals of Athelflaed because of her prominence and may, and may even have been commissioned by Athelflaed. If that's the case, then that would have been a significant step in her leadership program, very much like her father's educational reforms to really much preserve Mercian history and learning. So, And then there's also Asser's life of Alfred. So this is what affords us a glimpse into Athelflaed's childhood via her family history. And Asser himself was a Welsh monk working at Alfred's West Saxon court, and he composed the account of Alfred's life in 893. So that's actually after Athelflaed has moved into Mercia. And then there are also a number of wills and charters that bear her name um, and other non-English sources where she's mentioned favourably as a queen, such as the Annals of Ulster, Fragmentary Annals of Ireland, Annals of Wales, and so on. So in other words, in summary, there are a number of sources um, that record Athelflaed's life and reign, and many more besides that that are offering us a really rich insight into her times and the significance of Mercia. So that certainly helps me understand why she's remembered. Then why do we have this issue of this silencing? And actually, the key to that comes when we look at another set of sources from this period, the early English chronicles. And they're basically a core and highly complex set of annals, historical accounts, and they amount to the earliest history written in the Old English language. So they're really significant documents, and they've also been referred to as the Anglo-Saxon chronicles. And these annals, they seem to have originated under the impetus of Alfred the Great's educational reforms. And the oldest surviving manuscript of the early English chronicle, called the Parker Chronicle, this was started in the 9th century, and it was continued into the 11th century. In other words, it also spans the year of Athelflaed's reign, and yet it mentions her only tersely for the purpose of recording her death in 918, and it makes no mention of her daughter Alfwyn. So just to quote that section in the um, annals for the listener, it says, Edward succeeded to all the lordship of the land of Mercia that had been given allegiance to Athelflaed, his sister, and all the people who had settled in Mercia, both Danish and English, submitted to him. That was good and easy, in other words. So that all seems to be working out quite nicely. The Parker Chronicle is effectively offering us a West Saxon version of history. And here we see its aim to promote the legitimacy of the line of West Saxon kings, including Edward, of course, and the idea that he was accepted by his subjects, that that is um, a natural follow-on from Athelflaed and that um, the people of Mercia accepted him. 
the Mercian register, on the other hand, so going back to those annals um, composed in Mercia, they actually give us a, a different idea and maybe a clue as to why Athelflaed's reign might have been a little bit problematic. So for the entry in 919, the Mercian register says, the daughter of Athelred, Lord of the Mercians, was deprived of all authority in Mercia. She was taken into Wessex three weeks before Christmas. Her name was Alfwyn. Now, I'm going to speculate here. I, I feel like we can detect something of a tone in that, maybe not an entirely approving one. But at any case, the entry does suggest that Alfwyn was accepted as the next Mercian ruler before Edward, possibly even elected by the Mercian people themselves. And it may have been the case that the Mercian court really approved of Alfwyn um, as a further symbol of um, Mercia's ability to rule itself as an independent kingdom, because it had been doing so under Athelflaed so successfully, whereas Edward may not have been such, um, an, such a desirable leader, really, because that meant suddenly Mercia might be losing something of its independent political identity. So for a West Saxon version of history, Athelflaed and Alfwyn's legacy may have been a really problematic symbol, a symbol of Mercia's power. And therefore, in order to suppress Mercian separator's sentiments, the West Saxon annals kept mention of Athelflaed to the bare minimum and completely um, erased mention of Alfwyn and her succession to her mother's seat. So that's where we come back to this idea of the conspiracy of silence. It pertains to the West Saxon chronicles, but not to every early medieval historical narrative. And the West Saxon chronicles, of course, they're presenting a selective history. And of course, they're promoting the narrative of West Saxon legitimacy, according to which account Alfred, his son Edward, and then his son Athelstan feature as significant in the creation of a smooth arc of history, whilst the Mercian women, they quite simply found themselves at the wrong place at the wrong time. Was this an indictment of Athelflaed's gender? No, not necessarily. And nor was it necessarily an indictment of her achievements. It was a political clash and something that for ideological reasons, the writer of the West Saxon Chronicles just couldn't afford to let slip. So that was the big surprise for me. And I found that quite a rewarding um, process of discovery to ask different questions about how gender is presented or even how it seems to be castigated in the historical narrative when there may be so many more factors at work. For sure. Um it's just funny, uh, at the beginning of, of that answer, you talked about how um, so many things in 2018, there was so much remembrance of, of Athelflaed. Um, and it just reminds me, a colleague sent us both an image from Chester um, of, I don't know if it's an official uh, sort of like little mural thing or graffiti. I kind of hope it was graffiti <laughs> with a drawing of Athelflaed on the side of it looks like, you know, some sort of electrical box or something, some sort of piece of infrastructure. A painting of Athelflaed and it says like and don't forget Athelflaed. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I did. It. I did see that. I have to admit, I did laugh um in that. And I still I still enjoy that she's mentioned. Um but yeah, exactly that, that warning again. And and I still want to ask, it's like is is that a warning that we need to be heeding um in, in real concern? Um, but still hey, it's funny. And yeah, I couldn't work out what that was either. Part of me thought at first it was a telephone box, but it doesn't look yeah. like a telephone box. <laughs> I'll have I'll have to go and look at it myself. Yes, for sure. <laughs> So what was especially challenging about putting this book together? Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the challenge was, how you overcame it, why it was rewarding to work on? Do you know, the example that you just gave is um, 
it's reminded me of one of the one of the challenges I had because you see, if I'd seen the picture that our colleague sent us of <laughs> Athelblad, maybe that would have been the front cover of the volume. Oh um, yes, <laughs> you know, like a volume that explores and critiques multiple representations of Athelblad um, across time made it immensely challenging to settle on a picture for the front cover. And this is as simple an example as I mean. It actually um, forced me through a whole process of thinking through um, how we present different narratives of history. How is it possible to do that? Just um, the listener, when they see the front cover, what they'll see basically is a front uh, is a photograph of the statue of Athelflaed in Tamworth, which was created by Luke Perry. And... Tamworth is, is basically a town um, in the Midlands where Athelflaed died, but it was also historically like the main seat of power for Mercia. And when I went to see this statue, um, it struck me as being quite simply enormous. We went for a trip, we wanted to photograph it, and you turn a corner and there it is on a roundabout. And it's six meters high and very imposing. It sort of has Athelflaed looming over her surroundings. And... It's also, the material is quite interesting. It's made of this um, this hard grey steel, which is almost like a nod to two histories at the same time. On the one hand, Tamworth's early medieval history, it's Athelflaed, but then at the same time, the Midlands industrial past. And Athelflaed's name is, it's inscribed on the sword hilt of the statue, and then she's holding this ginormous spear, which is thrust out in front of her in this really marked victory pose. And when I looked at it, I think very much the narrative that comes to the forefront is Athelflaed was a Mercian. And Mercia had its own history and its own political identity. And that needs to be remembered, is what the statue is saying. And, and certainly we know that Athelflaed's female genealogy pointed to Mercia as home. And also, Athelflaed did bring the varying tribes of Mercia together under her successful rulership. She made them party to her political visions for the region. But for me... This marked a significant difference to another statue that's in Tamworth. So if you walk just around the corner, and this is a very small town in England, if you walk just around the corner to the castle grounds in Tamworth, there's another statue that was erected in 913. It was erected to mark 1,000 years after um, Athelflaed fortified the Burr at Tamworth. And if we look at it, it's got this... Um, this image, this statue of Athelflaed, she's holding in one hand her sword and it's sort of thrust down and it's quite a territorial pose. And then her other arm is embracing a young boy who's looking up at her. And this boy is her nephew, Athelstan, so that's Edward's son. And just to say a little bit about Athelstan briefly, as a boy, he was actually sent to the Mercian court to be fostered by Athelflaed and Athelred. So there's a little bit of speculation around this. Why, why did they do that? Was it the plan devised between Athelflaed and her brother Edward that Athelstan would eventually rule Mercia and Wessex or perhaps just Mercia. And for that reason, it made sense for Athelstan to be brought up in the Mercian court. Then he would know them and then they would also see him perhaps as one of their own, thus making a very smooth political transition. It, it's all speculation because it also begs the question of then what about Alfwyn? In any case, Athelstan really did accede to the throne of Wessex and Mercia in 924 following Edward's death. And at that time, he ruled a territory that was encompassing all of England south of the River Humber, including that of the Danelaw and the once separate East Anglia. And then Athelstan invaded the Viking Kingdom of York, and this brought the Kingdom of Northumbria under his rule, and the Danish people submitted to him. So that meant that he was finally 
fulfilling the plans that his aunt Athelflaed had lain, laid previously. So it was precisely this victory that earned Athelstan the title Rex Anglorum, King of the English. And he was the first to have that title, the first to have joint his own rulership over these joint kingdoms. And he did maintain that rule in peace. When we look at this statue, then this other statue of 913 in Tamworth, are we actually detecting a strong link between Athelstan's political ambitions and Athelflaed's legacy in the north? And do we see Athelflaed's Mercia, and that's her stamp of approval of Athelstan in her court, as the necessary gateway of his success? And if we take this view, then Athelflaed fostered the first king of the English, and that's what makes her mother of the English, and that's where that title and the idea comes from. So when I was looking at these two statues, I saw really clearly that these are two different versions, different retellings of Athelflaed's life, and they're each emphasizing so different points of connection, but also different culture and political ideologies so closely together. And for me, there's something quite rich about that, because when I consider them both together, I say, which version of history is true? Well, maybe that's not the point of the question. For me, the challenge of selecting one cover image of the book signified the challenge of selecting one version of history because they are multiple. And I'm going to be honest with you, if there had been a statue of Athelflaed with her mother and her daughter, I would have photographed that. But to the best of my knowledge, that does not exist. So in the meantime, I, I look now at Luke Perry's statue and I, I do think it's a fascinating uh, piece of art. Um, for me, it's it's more like a reminder in its enormity that Athelflaed has accumulated a huge legacy uh, that continues to find cultural currency today. And her spear, as photographed in the collection, could be pointing onwards to future retellings and possibilities of connection with the past. Yeah. And that really is a giant statue. <laughs> Our American huge. listeners, um, six meters is something like 18, 20 feet, something like that. <laughs> it's very, very large. It's very it's convincingly imposing. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. So I would like to talk a little bit about um, something that that isn't in the book. Um, this is an edited collection. So each chapter is by a different author and takes a different approach, as you've kind of um, talked about, toward Athelflaed or toward women in, in 10th century England. Is there an approach or topic related to Athelflaed that ultimately isn't in the book? I'm sure there are many, um, but is there one or one or two that you would really like to talk about here to give you the space to um, to talk about something that couldn't be included? Yeah, I really like that question because, um, of course, the volume we're limited. Um, we can't say it all. And actually, that's really important to emphasize because the volume initiated an exploration of Athelflaed's life and women in 10th century England. But it's also really crucial to emphasize that there are still numerous avenues for further research and discussion. And the whole point of this volume was that it was intended to invite and hopefully inspire more perspectives and also to emphasize that interpretations are multiple and that we expect there to be even more interpretations and perspectives um, that still need to be told. Um, maybe just to be helpful, I could give two, two examples where things are mentioned in the volume that I think could be lead to really rich expansion um, the first is the intersection of religion and politics in Athelflaed's era. So this offers a really compelling area for deeper investigation at any rate. Um, we've touched upon her patronage of religious institutions and her collaborations with bishops. Uh, so for example, Athelflaed and Athelred, they provided support and endowments to several monasteries, including the very famous Abbey of St. Oswald in Gloucester. And 
Athelflaed also worked closely with bishops in her domain. It's speculated in this volume that the Bishop of Worcester may have had a hand in creating the Old English Mersian Annals, uh, which provide this detailed account. And in the Annals, the chronicler writes a number of times that Athelflaed had success because of God's help and by the grace of God. So there's still room to really delve more profoundly into the dynamics of faith, governance, patronage, and religious diversity during this period and what it signified. So I think the religious landscape of Athelflaed's era provides fertile ground for scholarly exploration. But also there's a literary angle that sort of speaks again a little bit to my own personal interest that I think could be expanded upon. So Athelflaed's potential association with the biblical Judith. This connection, it was first made by editors of the Old English poem Judith in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And basically both Athelflaed and Judith, they're widows. They're both um, leaders of people and they're both prepared to fight. They're both great warrior leader uh, leaders effectively. And then also... As possible connections between Athelflaed and the historical figure of St. Helena, especially in light of the fact that um, there's a mention of the Feast of the Invention of the Cross by St. Helena in the Mersian Annals, and um, the Old English poem Elena, just like the Old English poem Judith, was composed around the time of Athelflaed's life. Dating is a bit tricky, but it's around that time. So I definitely think it's worth exploring these literary historical connections because they can really help us to better understand how cultural and religious narratives are intersecting during this time. But in any case, the study, it's encouraging a broader conversation about many themes that are relevant at this time. So that includes not only gender, as we've mentioned, also race and cultural identity, religious identity in early medieval England, and of course, the uses of historical narratives, the representations of Athelflaed from the 10th century to the 21st century. And actually, that's another area that would um, be a fascinating place for development because the volume does touch on these, but there are so many. And we simply did not have space to discuss all of them in depth. So especially looking at some from the 19th century, I think would repay further study. But in essence, the volume is a starting point. It invites the readers to expand upon the themes. And really, what I would want to encourage in that is that the readers allow their own research interests and their own pressing questions to shape future study. And so take this conversation in new, unexpected and exciting directions. And it is precisely that that will actually contribute to our understanding of the complex range of issues that define the 10th century and beyond it, of course. Yes. Oh, that connection between uh, Athel Flatt and Judith is so fascinating to me. Um, I've written about Judith and um, uh, now I'm, of course, blanking on the other. Juliana. <clears throat> Judith and Juliana in the, their Old English kind of saints' lives as, as I would argue, like really some of the only women in Old English literature that are personally and actively violent and are not uh, castigated for it, but actually per- sort of um, portrayed positively. Um, and yeah, I... Uh, hadn't made that connection between Athelflaed and Judith yet. That's really fascinating. So maybe I'll think about that some more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And thinking about women's proximity to violence, like yes. you say, um, command and violence specifically, um, and whether that is positively or negatively depicted in narratives is fascinating. Well, great. What uh, I also like to ask authors, what kind of courses, I mean, I think a lot of times we, um, some people tend to think about these uh, monographs or edited collections, these scholarly books as you know, things that really only other scholars might read. Um, but I really like to ask about how um, these books might be used in in classrooms. What kind of 
courses do you think would benefit? And especially with an edited collection, it can be um, a little bit easier to use in a classroom since you could kind of excerpt specific chapters um, and articles from them. What kind of courses do you think would benefit from including this text in their reading lists? The first thing to point out with this volume is um, it's written by scholars working in diverse fields. So we have archaeology, we have history, cultural history, source studies, literary studies, feminism, art history. And so that does lend it to um, a range of courses. And there are a range of temporal perspectives in here, um, as, as well as comparative studies that open up the geographical lens. And that makes it relevant for courses, I mean, to name the most obvious one, first of all, is medieval history. So there could be courses um, on women in medieval British history, Beyond Borders, Athelflaed and her influence, or even looking at the sources from this volume, medieval European history, so powerful women across medieval Europe in a comparative perspective. Or I would really like to see women in 10th century considered in a sort of global women's history, which is oppression at the moment. And that could be something like queens and matriarchs worldwide, Athelflaed, situating Athelflaed in a global perspective. And students would find like a rich uh, amount of material for that kind of a course. But also in other fields of study, such as gender and feminist studies, uh, this volume could fit well in a course that explored gender roles in the early medieval period, or even feminism across centuries. So how this period in English history um, examines, it could be used to critically examine representations of women across time. And there could be focuses on women's agency, but also feminist icons. And um, Athelflaed's complex legacy is an invitation to rethink how legacy um, form and um, what that has to do with um, the development of feminist narratives and perspectives across time. And then, of course, literary and cultural studies um, could find lots of material in this volume, especially courses that look at ruling women in literature. Let's say the good, the bad and the fantastically notorious. It's all in there. And that also literary women in historical contexts are really thinking about historical writing and narratives of women. Also, the role that women are playing in commissioning um, and composing manuscripts and works of art and there's material in here as well about female scribes and female teachers and the role of commissioning texts in education there but also like taking a slightly different angle to that I think that um, this this volume really has something to say to courses that are about challenging national narratives so looking at women's legacy in modern memory um, but also in the modern imagination um, and that sort of lends itself, I think, to a sort of political science angle, depending on where the course is emphasizing. But um, this volume also addresses the subject of queenship and power, so women's reign and political dynamics. And it also says, hey, um, let's look at decolonizing medieval history. So courses that are, are focusing on the impact of um stories and narratives about women in history, the impact that has had on identity and um, how we move beyond those rep uh, representations. So there are actually many possibilities. These are just a, a few ideas. Um, but in each of these cases that I've mentioned, I think for me, the thing that stands out with this volume is it can offer students a multidisciplinary view of women's lived experiences in early medieval England and also bring about a focus on critical analysis and um, and challenging these dominant narratives. Uh, and that's something that we definitely want to generate conversation about. 
Yeah, sounds like there's a ton of options. So people, those are all really great ideas to start with. And hopefully people can look at the book and, and come up with many more. So so just before we end, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Um, just before we end, <clears throat> this book is coming out from Medieval Institute Publications, which um, their publications employ innovative and interdisciplinary approaches to what it has meant to be human throughout the ages. What does this book teach us about what it meant to be human in early medieval England or perhaps uh, what it means to be human now? This is such a rewarding focus because it, it takes so much historical detail and fact and really situates it in a much broader and relevant conversation. So um, I think I would like to highlight three. I, obviously, you know, there are lots of options here, but I, three ways that I think for me, it makes me rethink the concept of humanity. Firstly, that humans are relational and that interpersonal relationships are important. So when I was studying for this volume, I was struck by how it showcased the complex web of kinship and alliances and friendships in a historical context. And during her career, Athelflaed certainly had great skills in building, maintaining and drawing on relationships and having a great effect and through this relational aspect of her rule. And so at its core, it's a reminder to me that humans have a need for connection, support and cooperation to achieve common goals and communities and friendships, even in a political context, serve as essential sources of strength and resilience for humans. And then I think also how I'd put it is humans are hardwired for stories. <laughs> we all are. And by studying representations and retellings of Athelflaed and women in 10th century England, I think this volume really touches on that um, human inclination to remember significant events and remember significant people. And the stories that we then shape about the past, about the past, of course, play a really significant role in establishing not only a sense of individual identity, but also collective identity. And therefore, history and the study of history is so significant because it's speaking to an innate desire, if I can say that, an innate desire in humans to identify with others and so to belong, so to have that sense of belonging. And this volume certainly explores the various uses, and I should add the misuses, of course, of history across time. And, and so it's inviting readers to really reflect critically on history, on how history is retold in society and for what purposes. And then thirdly, if there's a bit of an obvious point to make perhaps, because this is an academic collection of studies, but for me that just reminds me that also humans are curious um, they have this desire to ask new questions um, about a range of subjects. And here we're asking new questions and, and inviting new questions about history and gender. And this is also this human desire to pursue learning, um, to be able to critically examine historical narratives in this context um, and demonstrate a capacity not only for learning, but also in some cases for unlearning and taking things in a different direction. So my hope certainly is that this volume prompts the reader to challenge assumptions, to critically weigh up the information and to adapt their understanding, which is precisely what will enable um, us to gain new insights into the complexities of history. Awesome. Rethinking the concept of humanity. That's always my goal. So thanks for playing along. <laughs> I really, really like um, asking that question. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. 
So thank you so much. This conversation has been so wonderful. Um, I really hope our readers have enjoyed, or our listeners <laughs> will enjoy it as much as I have. Uh, and just a reminder, we're speaking with Rebecca Hardy uh, about her forthcoming, uh, about her book, Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians and Women in 10th Century England, out from Medieval Institute Publications. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was great to speak with you. Thanks so much. It's been a great conversation.